papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. The Media Project is a half hour of commentary and analysis on what's going on in the media with some veteran journalists here. We invite you to join us. In fact, we are always happy to hear from you. Media at WAMC.org is how you might send us email. I'm Rex Smith, former editor of the Times Union and now writing the Upstate American on Substack. Here with Barbara Lombardo, the former executive editor of the Saratogian and the Record of Troy. With Ira Fussfeld, who was publisher after having been the editor of the Daily Freeman in Kingston, New York, and affiliated publications, and with Ian Pickus, the news director of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Here we are. And I hate to do this, folks, because it's just the nature of talking about the media these days. We need to start by talking about Donald Trump. Who? Uh, <laughs> a fact of the matter is that it is a remarkable situation that after the concern about Donald Trump dominating the airwaves of cable TV in 2016, the fact is it's happening again. Trump has been mentioned, according to this new study, in 38% more clips on the big three national cable news networks, CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News, 38% more clips then mentioned Joe Biden, the incumbent president, this year so far. How can that be? What is it that makes Donald Trump so much more interesting to cable news, worthy of more attention than the sitting president? Is it possible the answer is scandal? Because those charts showed a lot of the mentions were his criminal entanglements, which are go. many. Ah, Yeah, I think that if he's getting excessive amount of name recognition these days, it's largely because of the coverage of his trials and the indictments, etc., just anecdotally, it seems to me there's far less coverage of his campaign events and politically related maneuvering than there was the last time around. Right, because there doesn't have to be, because every time he farts, the media covers it all day long, and it makes me sick. I agree with the Atlantic editor-in-chief, Jeffrey Goldberg, who said that he does not want to participate in the normalization of Donald Trump, and I think more media need to do the same. It's not being biased against him or for him, but just making sure that over and over again we are reporting what's facing us. But if you're cutting back the coverage of him, do we run the risk, we meaning media writ large, do we run the risk of not covering or not providing our readers and listeners information about Trump and what his plans are as he states his plans that we ought to know? We should not be presuming that uh, he's either joking I'm talking about discussion of him being a dictator. I mean, that's got to be reported. The public has got to be aware of this is what your candidate is talking about. Right. I'm not saying not cover him, but cover him selectively, judiciously. And every time you say something about him or report what he says, it has to be followed up immediately right there with the truth. I think Ira's onto something here. There is a disconnect between 
the idea of coverage and then a change in the public's view. And I think that's where a lot of this hand-wringing comes from. The fact is, right, we have a system where somebody can win fair and square on a platform like the one that Donald Trump is espousing. And I think we're into year eight here of saying sunlight is the best disinfectant and we've got to put these plans and lies on display. And yet, as I think I said on last week's show, it's still a 50-50 choice right now. The polls show us it's a 50-50 race. You're right, which is, I think, why some editors are beginning to ask their staffs to produce more stories about the Trump threat. It is becoming more typical now to see stories really analyzing what he's saying, that as Jeffrey Goldberg of The Atlantic put it, that he poses a threat. Marty Baron, who used to be the editor of The Washington Post, says he's the only politician I've heard talk about suspending the Constitution, weaponizing the government, bringing treason charges against the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and treason charges against Comcast, the owner of, of NBC. And so we have to write about that. We have to report about that almost incessantly because there is a real danger that we're going to be led by a But here's the rub. The, the, people who, the people who need to know this, the people who are in between as to whether or not they're going to vote for Trump, are not reading the Atlantic. They're not reading the, well, I'll use the word elite. It's not the best word, but they're not reading those publications. The people who are tied into Trump and who are watching Fox or related stations or print outlets, they're not going to be moved. We can hit them on the head with this stuff. They like them. So the audience for what we're talking about, what you're suggesting, is that group of moderates and independents that must be alerted to what's going on and who may not be crazy about Biden, but who would probably be convinced that they don't want any part of a Trump dictatorship. You know, to Ian's point about why it is that we're seeing more mentions of Trump than Biden being the bad news, actually, when you dig deeper into the data, it shows that CNN and MSNBC mention Trump more often, but Fox News mentions Biden more. And that is because they're talking about the Biden crime family and the impeachment of Joe Biden and so on. So I guess that. that and the others point. are talking about the Trump crime family. Right. Right. And Ari, yeah. you're right about the conundrum of no matter what the media write, people are going to believe what they believed going in, that we may not be convincing people, we may not even be reaching the people we're, we're, that we most desperately even, want to reach. They're not even exposed to it. Agreed. But in the end of the day, when we in the media review how did we do on this, we want to know that in our good conscience that we have done our very best to alert people. We can't make people pay attention. We can't make people believe it. But at least we're doing our part to lay it all out for them. The difficulty is that, of course, as we've said before, it makes it sound like we're biased. And when you have Trump advisors, the people who are going to be key in the next Trump administration, saying we're coming after the media. There was this amazing exchange on Steve Bannon's podcast, a guy named Cash Patel, who was the director of counterintelligence in the Trump administration and chief advisor to the secretary of defense. So a guy with had previously had great authority in the Trump administration, he actually said, we will go out and find the conspirators, not just in the government, but in the media. Yes, we're going to come after the people in the media who lied about American citizens, who helped Joe Biden rig the election. We're going to come after you. Yeah, we're putting you all on notice. That's 
scary that this guy is going to be in a position of authority and they are seriously talking. This is not hypothetical. These people are telling you what's going to happen. Yeah, that's scary. And the people that are following that are going, yeah, yeah. go get them. Right. Yay. Yeah, I just think there's some magical thinking happening uh, here. I mean, we all take what we do very seriously, but 2016 coming down the elevator, it was even 15 for the 2016 election. You know, Mexicans are rapists and murderers, and some of them are nice people. That was a long time ago. And Tanahasi Coates said something after 2016 that I still think about, which is people knew a lot about what Donald Trump was offering, and it was not a deal breaker. And I don't think that dynamic has changed at all. So is there anything we can do? Well, I think everyone's saying it here on this panel. We've got to keep calling balls and strikes the way we have. But I don't expect that, as Ira says, an Atlantic special issue about all the ways that the next Trump administration you know, is going to weaponize American government against its own people and the other things that Trump is talking about doing. It probably will not change voters minds and we all know the amount of voters who decide a presidential election is vanishingly small you're talking about a slice of a slice of a slice in you know five or six key states here that is actually true the vast majority of voters are not going to change their mind no matter what right so well they don't believe what we say by we i mean the, the mainstream of quote unquote you see some of the interviews at trump rallies of people who are all turned out in their trump maga gear and the interviewer will say something about trump and then they'll say where did you hear that from <laughs> i don't believe it once you tell them where you heard it from no, I don't believe it. They're now trained like SEALs not to believe anything that the mainstream media says. So how do you get through to them? All right. Well, folks, if you have some thoughts on the approach here, media at WAMC.org, we would love to hear what you have to say. I'm Rex Smith here with Barbara Lombardo, Ira Fussfeld, and Ian Pickus, and we are the Media Project from Northeast Public Radio here in the capital region of New York, uh, which is not where everybody is listening to us. But we had a, a major event here recently, a college that is based in Albany, the College of St. Rose, uh, that's been around for more than 100 years, has announced that it's going to close. And there was some hullabaloo about this because there were reports about this in the news media before the college made a formal announcement, reports saying that there was a good possibility of it. And then the board voted and the news media reported on the board vote. And the college president then the next day when she finally had a forum with students denounced the media for reporting this. It just strikes me as odd. Were we not supposed to report it? <laughs> the idea that you can keep a secret about a college going out of business for 24 hours, let alone 36, it strikes me as, you know, blaming the messenger here on the fact that that story came out. And I can understand because it was a day of trauma for the entire college community that people are very upset. And having the president's job in that situation where you have to go in and make the announcement to all these people whose lives are going to be upended, I can sympathize with her being unhappy with the reporters. But on the other hand, I will say, you know, as an outlet that covers this college closely, they're not famous for their transparency. And that is where, when the news is bad, you lose the opportunity for, you know, grace on the part of local media. And we were trying to run this story down a month ago, and the uh, official word we got back is the college has no plans to announce a closure. 
So you can read between the lines of that carefully worded sentence and uh, see how it looks in the rearview mirror. I think maybe she was just blaming the press because she was unhappy with the situation. The press did not close St. Rose. Well, let me just be clear. She was, her name was Marsha White. She was mad that the Times Union, which I believe had it first or most aggressively. I think uh, News Channel 13 does. So they, uh, but they broadcast first. the news before the college had an opportunity to formally announce it. And by the way, the owner of the Times Union is on the board of trustees that made the vote to close. So... They obviously can get inside information, and it's their job to publish it. Well, as a former publisher, I must confess that the publisher doesn't always share some information. That shocking news. Well, you have the business side of the operation yeah. in the community. Sure, side. I'm not accusing anybody yeah. of anything, but the board of trustees is dozens of people, and presumably one or two of them said what happened in the vote the day before the formal announcement. You can't keep a secret like that under wraps. Now, again, am I wrong? Did I read that she the president president did not want the press to attend the campus meeting. Well, you are correct about that. Two WAMC reporters were escorted out of the room where oh, the really? formal announcement happened. Hmm. Oh, hmm. I did not know that. Yeah, I thought I read that somewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So and it's a private campus. Is... You have to respect that. But that doesn't go toward the transparency issue. What media were in there? Well, my understanding is some people had tangential connections to the campus where they could pass. And everything that happened in that meeting was recorded on cell phones. So, again, you know, I don't do PR, but if I were doing PR, I would say open it to the community and let anybody who wants to come in come in and they'll have more accurate stories for it. You know, there are seven PR practitioners for every journalist in America. (laughs) So there are plenty of people who could have advised her that she needed to have a crisis management plan in place to be immediately prepared so that when the board voted, I don't think the board's vote was unexpected. I think the board knew what its agenda was. It sounds like she had plenty of time to plan for this. This should have been handled. I, I mean, I hate to be the PR advisor instead of playing the role of journalist, but we journalists could have been managed differently you know and we are we were managed that's for sure in one of you say that the publisher of the times union is on the board of st rose i think that that's interesting for listeners because it's always been a frustration in newsrooms when your publisher is involved in organizations and they know stuff that the newsroom wants to report and yet they have an obligation who are they serving in that capacity are they serving the newspaper that they represent and should tell the news first or is there obligation to the board that they're serving on to stay mum? As I said, it's a difficult balancing act because as the publisher of a newspaper or the head of a broadcast operation, is you're running not only that journalistic enterprise, but you're running a business. And, and you're running a business in a community. You want your publisher out there attending Chamber of Commerce meetings and get involved with boards. It's a, an outreach issue. And it's inevitable that you're going to learn things that people are not yet prepared to make as news. It can be very uncomfortable for a publisher to know that. And Barbara, didn't you have, did you ever have this experience as an editor where you knew things that you didn't think could be reported by your own? staff? Not that pops into my head, but if I thought harder, something I had that, that experience ready, as an editor that I, ready to be I told. knew things that were actually relating to our business, for example, and that was uh, material that would have been interesting to my newsroom, but it was shared with me on a confidential basis. And okay. oftentimes you need to tell people don't talk to me. I yep. don't want to hear anything from you, right? That's actually true, and I can attest to that as well, where there would be instances where change of ownership or change of plans of how our business was going to be run 
yes, I would know before my staff. Sometimes I would be the one telling my staff, or sometimes it would be the corporate entities or the publisher telling the staff. Or even a politician saying, I want to talk to you off the record. And you say, no, 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 you are not going to talk to me off the record because then I'll be stuck with information uh, that I, I can't use. I can yes. remember any number. I was involved on several economic development corporation boards. And you inevitably learn about perhaps this business is coming in, perhaps this business is closing, but you can't report that because it's confidential. And let's say you, you know that a business is closing and you run and give it to the newsroom. Well, that can do significant damage even in the short term to that operation. There are any, any number of examples, but it's a difficult issue. But as a member of a newsroom, I would kind of understand, but I would be upset if my publisher knew that something as significant as a college closing was just voted on by that publisher and that we got beat on the story. <laughs> and yet that person isn't supposed to leak the story. Hmm. I don't blame Marsha White for being upset, but she's a big girl. She knows how well, the game is played. Doesn't she know it? I mean, if she yeah. was the chief of staff or communications officer to the state senator who was the majority leader in the state legislature and then went on to be the president, is it her title? It's back the major performing arts center around here. Mm -hmm. seems like she has all sorts of history on knowing how to deal with and about media. I don't, I don't know how she could have bobbled this. How about uh, the question of covering higher education in general these days? Because uh, this is really a significant problem. St. Rose is not the first, nor will it be the last, of the uh, liberal arts colleges to go under. We had Casanova College this year already. We've had two major SUNY campuses that have announced major cutbacks in the face of built-in deficits. And and so as we look at what's going on around the country, you have to question what are the dynamics that are, that are there and what can the media do involving these institutions, which are hugely important in their communities? How do you deal with that kind of coverage? Are we, are we doing a very good job of covering this? Well, I'll give you one good example. I thought that this week the Times Union had a story by Kathleen Moore that talked about even after the St. Rose closure announcement, there was an announcement or she dug up from Fredonia, part of the state system, that they were going to be cutting back. So her story, it's not just this routine step in the latest news from Fredonia, but she took the big picture of what's going on in higher education in New York State and incorporated St. Rose, incorporated Potsdam that mm -hmm. um, had cut back, talked about what the enrollments are for community colleges statewide and in SUNY schools overall statewide. And, and part of this is demographic. That is, uh, the baby boom generation, the, the kids of the baby boom have are now out of college, and so there is a, a lull, and it's going to be uh, the mid-30s before the population is then available. But there is also, I think, an anti-intellectual movement, an anti-higher education movement that's especially coming out of the Republican Party, frankly, that is making it very difficult for higher education to keep its footing. And there are going to be threats to funding for higher education. And again, I'm sure if Donald Trump is elected, it's going to be open season on these college campuses, which he perceives as being left-wing hotbeds. Yeah, we, we saw this week the Republicans dragging some college presidents in front of a committee to question them about anti-Semitism. But, you know, to St. Rose, I one thing I wish we had done better here is connect the dots earlier. When I look back at our coverage, we have been reporting on St. Rose, which is right around the corner from our studio, when the adjunct faculty unionized and the school said this is going to really raise costs and lead to cutbacks. When the pandemic hit 
and the last college president left under a cloud and Marsha White came in when the enrollment numbers were cut in half. I wish we had started connecting some of the dots for something that was really unthinkable maybe five years ago that it could go out of business. And I think those questions, because I went back and looked, we asked Marsha White in 2020 or 2021, is St. Rose in danger of closing? And she said, no, and there's a plan and it's a multi-year plan. We should have gone back and checked that more recently than we did. Which is difficult because it's a private school. Yeah. yeah, and as we say, transparency was not their goal here. That's why so many people are upset with the announcement. No matter when they got it, whether they learned about it from WNYT or when the college president said it, it was not good news. I thought she was, uh, that Marsha, seen, it seemed small when she was nitpicking the governor's statements. It, was it the governor about... Uh, no, it was the Times Union coverage about, of... Uh, uh, whether it was a bailout or whether it was a bridge. Bridge funding or bailout. Uh, she didn't like the term bailout used in the newspaper as opposed to bridge funding. Uh, it sounds kind of the same to me. Essentially, they were still closing <laughs> in May. Right. Uh, but... But if she uh, and the board had succeeded in, apparently they were trying to do, to either sell the college or merge with some some other uh, educational entity, and they were able to announce that instead, then it would have been, they're heroes, they're, what a great announcement, they've saved it. And, and maybe, uh, maybe I'm being naive, but maybe they've been working on that all along and trying and trying, and then it, which could be a report of what did they really try to do. Hold the board accountable so to what did what did they try to do, and then mm -hmm. and the issue is uh, going made. forward. Then what is going to be the uh, posture of the media? How do we report on the other colleges around? And this is true for all over the country, everywhere. There are small colleges that are overextended on debt. Uh, St. Rose had fifty-eight million dollars. They can't even pay the debt service now, in debt uh, as a result of building at a time when students really needed stuff. Every college had to have a climbing wall, for example, <laughs> that kind of thing. And you know, once you spend the money to do that kind of stuff, then you have the debt service. And if the enrollment then drops, if the economy has trouble uh, as a result of the pandemic, you're going to have trouble. So going forward, it's going to be very tough but very important to report on higher education. Absolutely. And the question is, is the are the resources going to be there to do it? Because it's a, it's a natural story. There are any number of stories. Should the newspapers and broadcast this afternoon be on the phone with every local college president and ask what they think about these anti-Semitism hearings that were that took place? And that, that by the time this program airs, I'm guessing at least one of those presidents is going to be out of the job. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, but as we know, the, that's called localizing. We, we take a, a major story and we recognize that the same issues that are involved in the national story are right here in our backyard. And that's the stories. Those are the stories we should be doing because they're unique to us. We don't have I mean, the, the wire services can be covering the broader strokes. We should be using our coverage as sidebars to that. Absolutely. Every local radio station and regional radio station, the weekly newspapers, all over the county, uh, all over the state, rather, there are uh, community colleges and counties or, or branches of community colleges, and there are those small universities, and the well-being of those colleges affect the well-being of those whole communities. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, you, you need to call these colleges and put them on the spot. When you see what happened at St. Rose, could that happen here? Go on the record. So finally, folks, today on the Media Project, the Time Magazine Person of the Year is Taylor Swift. Uh, Sorry, Rex. 
<laughs> Maybe next year. Yeah, gosh darn it. But it's just kind of a remarkable thing because this is a uh, now. Now, Time Magazine is not the huge important vehicle that it once was. Is there still a print edition of Time? I don't know. Don't even I don't know. know. Yeah. Go to a doctor's office in three years and let us know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. See if you can get an appointment. Uh, but, you know, this is a publication that uh, Adolf Hitler was man of the year, as it used to be called. And, and, and that's the kind of, because it recognizes the biggest newsmaker of the year. And it is a very interesting notion that the most significant person in the world in 2023 was Taylor Swift. I'll tell you my experience of this. Someone asked if I had heard, so I got to guess a few times. My guesses were Elon Musk, Uh Zelensky, and Netanyahu. And those were all wrong. (laughs) Well, you are really a dork. (laughs) What a news guy. Guilty as charged. (laughs) There's something we've never heard on the Media Project. (laughs) I know. We've been called many names. I thought that was a really interesting and fun pick. Ian might be a dork, but I'm a total nerd. <laughs> and I and I and I went into uh, online onto the interweb to read up on different aspects of her life to see why she, why she might uh, have earned this, and she sh- and I think she did. But let's not forget what this is all about. Going back to the origins of this Man of the Year award, this is a it's a promotion that the that the magazine came up with. It right. generates interest. It generates controversy. People are talking about it. Maybe they'll go out and buy the magazine and read about it. And, you know, you can make an argument that Taylor Swift was a dominant figure in this country and around the world around the for world. much of this year. So was she the most important person? No, no way. But nevertheless. Well, and we there. had, of course, uh, Martha Stewart on the cover of the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Issue. So oh. the world is changing, folks. Man. That's news. Uh, that's all we have time for, folks. This is the Media Project, and we appreciate you coming along with us. Ira Festfeld, Barbara Lombardo, Ian Pickus, and I'm Rex Smith. Thanks to our producer, Dave Bestina. Thanks to you folks for joining us again this week on the Media Project. It must have startled poor old Sadie's on Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Hold the press, hold the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. Like the richest girl who could not bake a cake. Ding-ling, ding-ling, ling-ling, ling The Media Project is a national production of WAMC, Northeast Public Radio. This week's projectors include former Times Union editor and current Substack columnist of the Upstate American, Rex Smith. Barbara Lombardo, the former editor of the Saratogium and a journalism professor at the University at Albany. Ira Fussfeld is the publisher emeritus of The Daily Freeman. And WAMC News Director, Ian Pickus. You can listen to The Media Project anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. I'm your producer, David Gustina. Thanks for listening. Got a free new world to build. Meet the people, that's a thrill. All together fits the bill. Oh, newspapermen are such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the bill. Now, publishers are such interesting people. Their policy is an acrobatic thing. They claim to represent the common people. It's funny, Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go To working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough Now publishers are such interesting people 
It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs> <laughs> 